0: Going to go back a few thousand years before the resurrection, before the life of Christ. We spent the last two weeks in the Gospels, but we've spent this entire winter uh, or this year, 2019, in the book of Exodus. And so we're going to return to Exodus today and where we left off last time in Exodus as we kind of systematically work through in sequence almost the first 14 chapters. And from this point forward, We're going to pick up speed, but just to remind you, and if you weren't here, I'll give you uh, an overview that will hopefully be helpful, that will contextualize where we are today. Because context is always important in any story. Context is important in any book, and it's extremely important for us to understand the context of where we are in Scripture. Furthermore, it's important for us to not assume that people understand and know what is always going on in the life of God's people throughout redemptive history. So I'm going to give you a brief overview. We left in Exodus chapter 14 when God's people had been delivered from slavery. We spent the first 13 chapters watching and listening and hearing about God's people oppressed and enslaved in captivity in Egypt. We also have been saying throughout the book of Exodus that God's Old Testament people's story is our story. We're all longing for deliverance we 're all longing to be rescued. We all experience either literally and most but most of us it 's spiritually and figuratively enslavement and oppression and captivity and God has promised to bring deliverance. God has promised even to bring resurrection and He promised that to his people and He promised that, and his people were waiting and waiting patiently and not so patiently at times, and then God fully and finally brings that deliverance through the Passover, and then they experience the Passover, God delivers His people, and they move through this journey on the Exodus. But once they have left Egypt, very quickly, they get into a problem. They get into a problem of an overflowing banks of the Red Sea, and then on one end, and on the other end, they're in a problem because Pharaoh, once again, has changed his mind and is pursuing them. And as they're sitting there on the banks of the Red Sea with Pharaoh in the distance, seeking to come destroy them and either bring them back into captivity... Or, to kill them right then and there, they do what any good human being would do, and they freak out. And that's what we looked at the last time we were in Exodus, is them freaking out in fear and starting to get not only fearful, but sarcastic sarcastic with the Lord, sarcastic with Moses, paraphrase, saying things like, oh, I know why you brought us here. There weren't enough graves in Egypt. That's why you brought us here, just so we could die here and instead of die in Egypt. And then in a real seminal moment of leadership, Moses, who is the leader of God's people, turns to Israel once again, paraphrase, and says, shut up. Be still and let the Lord fight for you which that that moment on the banks of the Red Sea with the pursuit of Pharaoh in the midst of fear overtaking them, them freaking out and wanting to cry out to that which was in return to that which was familiar, even though it enslaved them, in many ways is us every day. We live on the brink of that moment where fear overtakes us, where we want to revert to what is safe and what is known, even if it enslaves us and captivates us in a negative way. And what we need to hear is what God's people needed to hear in that moment, which was, be quiet, be still, and let the Lord fight for you. Well, God does that. At night, God sends a wind and uses some natural and supernatural forces, if you will. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but as the Israelites slept on the bank of the Red Sea, they had to do this all night. And all night, the wind blew. Blew in such a way that was causing the Red Sea to part. And then it parts, and then they cross over on dry ground. I imagine it was a pretty muddy passage to get through the Red Sea. And then once they're there, Pharaoh and his troops and chariots and myriad uh, of people through his army start to cross the Red Sea, and then the Red Sea envelops them, and God ultimately finally gets victory over Pharaoh. And then God's people are through the Red Sea, but they continue their journey and they continue their exodus to their home. And in the midst of this journey and home through chapters 14 until 20, they're wandering sometimes seemingly aimlessly in the wilderness. Yet what we see primarily in that group of chapters is that God provides for his people. God does not only promise to deliver his people, God provides for his people in literal ways with food and then also in spiritual ways With his presence. And he does this all the way until we get into Exodus 19. And in Exodus 19. Something really particular. And something really significant happens. In the life of God's people. And the Lord says this specifically. In Exodus 19 verse 9. He said this to Moses. Behold. I am coming to you in a thick cloud. That the people may hear. When I speak with you. And may also believe you forever. So God tells Moses, hey, I'm going to speak to you audibly. I do not believe this is the way that God normatively speaks to his people as a side note. It's a longer discussion. But in this moment, we believe that the Lord audibly spoke to his servant Moses in the thickness of a cloud and thunder and in lightning, and spoke words that would never be forgotten. He spoke the words that we see in Exodus chapter 20 that are referred to as the Ten Commandments. If you will, stand, not with me, but on your own. As we read these words that the Lord proclaimed in an audible voice in Exodus 19 through thunder, thick cloud, and lightning, God spoke these words and then supernaturally and miraculously writes them on tablets of stone. Exodus chapter 20, and God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land, and that your Lord and that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Pray with me, Father, we pray this morning particularly that you would proclaim your truth, and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I had the privilege and the opportunity just over a month ago to travel to Switzerland with a group of friends. And I'd never been to Switzerland before. I had heard uh, by many Of the beauty of Switzerland. I gather there's probably no small number of you in a room like this that have experienced firsthand the beauty and the wonder and the awe of Switzerland on so many different levels. One of the things that is beautiful about Switzerland, and this is true about all of Europe, but Switzerland in a particular way, you get to access this beauty through a really fantastic system of trains. And if you know anything about Switzerland and you know anything about trains in Switzerland, what you also know is they are infamous for being meticulously on time. Right? Uh, the Swiss have this thing figured out. Not only do they have a God-given natural beauty among them, they've been able to harness this beauty in such a way that you can access it. That the beauty is revealed through things like a meticulous train system. But it's not only the trains in Switzerland I came to learn, uh, it's not only that those are meticulous, there is a certain meticulousness that pervades the Swiss. They are extremely high on punctuality and efficiency. And these things, interestingly enough, just make the experience in Switzerland that much more beautiful. Meticulous on-time trains, efficient systems, a punctuality that people give to each other through honor and through respect really, in many ways, makes the beauty that much more beautiful. One travel writer for the BBC says this, for the Swiss, punctuality is not a mere nicety, a bonbon on the buffet of life. It is a source of deep contentment. The Swiss, it seems, subscribe to the German philosophy and their definition of happiness as an absence of misery. Happiness is an absence of misery. They derive genuine joy from the fact that life unfolds on time and in a highly efficient manner. They They derive genuine joy from the fact that life comes on time and comes efficiently. It's no wonder that these people would be infamous throughout the history of the world for making watches, right? It's just inherent to who they are. However, not all people appreciate The efficiency and this meticulous nature of the Swiss and the punctuality, one English writer said, punctuality is a virtue of the board. Punctuality is a virtue of the board. And then this BBC writer goes on finally to say, that is unfair though. And finally, invariably, I come to appreciate Swiss punctuality for what it is, a deep expression of respect. For other people, a punctual person is a considerate one. By showing up on time for everything, a Swiss person is saying, in effect, I value your time, and by extension, I value you. Now, I don't mean this to be convicting for us as Americans and our lack of punctuality. What I actually am meaning to do by mentioning Switzerland. And their commitments to punctuality and to effectiveness. And the way that those things lead to beauty is to draw the parallel between that and God's law. To draw the parallel between that and this section of scripture in Exodus chapter 20 that has historically in ancient times been referred to simply as the ten words. These ten words are well known These ten words, at least in concept, these ten words have been part of at least our society really since its inception. Of course, there's some lamentation today, and I'll talk about this again in a minute, that these ten words are less well-known in detail than they used to be. These ten words are not as prominently displayed in some public places as they used to be. However, without question, these ten words... Are infamous. These ten words ultimately reveal to us God's beauty. Just as the Swiss trains reveal the beauty of Switzerland, just as Swiss punctuality reveals honor and respect, just as Swiss efficiency provides joy in many ways on an overarching level, God's law. And these ten words do the very same thing. They reveal God's beauty. The main thing I want us to say, see this morning through these ten words is that they reveal God, but more specifically, they reveal this principle truth about God, that relationship precedes rules. Exodus chapter 20, on a big idea perspective this morning, proclaims to us that a relationship with God, proceeds following God's rules. Let's unpack this in a little more detail, but we get that from the first two verses, often referred to as the preamble to the Decalogue, the preamble to these ten words, the preamble to the Ten Commandments. We think so often about what the Ten Commandments, for example, say, or what they prohibit. I wonder how often we think about the first two verses, of the Ten Commandments that are of utmost priority. It's important for us to understand that before God establishes His, even if you would, meticulous rules, before God establishes His efficient and effective way for His people to live holy lives, what God is seeking to establish first and foremost in Exodus chapter 20 is relationship. God is seeking to establish a relationship or to remind people of the relationship that He has with them. God has freed them from captivity in in Egypt. And what God is not about to do is take them back into captivity of rules and law. God wants to continue to proclaim His freedom from slavery out of Egypt And then speak other words, now that might be counterintuitive, but speak other words of freedom through these ten words, through these rules, through these commandments. But it's important for us to understand that relationship proceeds rules and that following and obeying God's rules can never merit God's love or favor. What I'm about to say in the next minute would be worth you being here, period. And you can tune out after this. I'll begin with a quote from Alec Motier commentating on the Ten Commandments. The people of God were given the law not in order that they might become the redeemed. Rather, it was because they had already been redeemed that they were given the law. I think this bears repeating. The people of God were were given the law not in order that they might become the redeemed. Rather, it was because they had already been redeemed that they were given the law. It's of utmost importance for us to understand that God issues these ten words in the context of a covenantal relationship with whom His people His people who have already been redeemed. God is not putting out a list that is essentially saying, Hey, here are ten things. These are ten really succinct, efficient, meticulous things. Just do these ten things and you'll be redeemed. It's as simple as that. That's not at all what God is doing. God is speaking to people that have already been redeemed. And as a result of having already been redeemed, God is instructing His redeemed people how to now live a redeemed life. He's already declared them to be righteous by His grace, not by their meticulous rule following, and now what He's doing is He's prescribing for them the life of the righteous that they have already been declared to be. But see, we rub up against this immediately because we live in a culture that is a culture that many have described as a meritocracy. We believe that obedience begets merit. And if that's true, we're all in trouble, not only with God, but we're in trouble as humans in life if we want to live within a meritocracy. What we do or what we don't do merits or lacks merit between God our Father. It's no doubt that obedience does receive or provoke within us blessing. When we're obedient to God, there is blessing that can be partaken of, but there is no merit in our obedience to God's law. And this is actually, and I get that this is somewhat controversial, and we can have a fun discussion on this later. This is why I personally am not particularly bothered, once again, this is personal, with the lack, let's say, of the familiarity and culture at large with the Ten Commandments. I'm not personally bothered that the Ten Commandments are not pasted on every public school. I'm not personally bothered that the Ten Commandments are not on every courthouse in America. Why? Because when they are, it leads people to judge and to move and to come up with wrong ideas about what Christianity is. I believe it lends people towards moralism and legalism, which actually does not move people towards God, but it moves people away from God. Why? Because the Bible never expects non-Christians to act like Christians. The Bible never expects non-Christians to act like Christians. And in fact, the Bible speaks words of judgment when non-Christians try to simply act like Christians in order to merit God's favor. Read Isaiah 1. The prophet Isaiah, or God is saying to the prophet Isaiah, I'm sick and tired of your sacrificial festivals and your worship that is external only through all your religious hoop jumping. I'm sick and tired of it. Or Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, many will come to me on the last day and say, Lord, Lord... Paraphrase, didn't we jump through all the external hoops that you gave us? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. We should be ashamed as Christians that we have espoused these ten words to the culture at large that essentially communicates, hey, just obey these and God will love you. Just obey these and you will merit God's favor. Just obey these and you will be redeemed. It's taken completely out. Of its Old Testament context. Its Old Testament context, just to return to what I said, is in the context of a covenantal relationship. And God says this clearly in verses 1 and 2 that my relationship with you precedes these rules. That's the overarching idea. Let's dig in briefly and just make a few reflections. And by the way, just in case you're wondering, we're not going to diagnose or go into the particular commands in this. Sermon this morning. The point of our idea today is to get a better understanding holistically of the Ten Commandments, of these Ten Words, and the life of God's people then and now, and then these also will help us to just understand God's law in general, even beyond the Ten Commandments. But the first thing that I've said and re said, and I just say one more time relationship precedes rules. Now let's look at a few particulars. We also see revealed in Exodus chapter 20, because that's what these 10 words actually do. They reveal God. Just like the perfect trains in Switzerland reveal the beauty of Switzerland, these 10 words reveal God. So what do they reveal to us about Him first? They reveal that God is majestic and that He's beautiful. They reveal God's majesty really just through what, we, what I referred to in Exodus chapter 19, that God comes in majesty in a sensational way, in a way that is not normative, and speaks audibly out of thunder and out of lightning. Dramatically, the text tells us, out of a dark cloud. It's not dissimilar to what we saw Him do in Exodus chapter 14 when He parts the Red Sea. These words, these ten words, these commandments reveal God's majesty among His people. And in the midst of revealing His majesty... They also reveal His beauty. Because you see, these ten words reflect His nature. These ten words mirror who God is and who God's people that follow Him are supposed to be. But we can learn first and foremost about who God is through the Ten Commandments before we start to think about the implications and the application that these ten words have to us as His people. They really reveal that God is. Is beautiful. And it seems that the psalmist really captured this, particularly in Psalm 119, which is an extensive reflection in many ways on the beauty of God's word, on the beauty of God's law, but ultimately it's a reflection upon the beauty of God himself. Because God is synonymous with his words and God is synonymous with his law. Just a few excerpts from Psalm 119, verse 18 Open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things. Of your law. Another accurate way to say it is Open my eyes that I may behold your wonder through the wonders of your law. Or verse 97 Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You could also substitute and simply say, Oh, how I love you in your beauty. You are my meditation throughout all the day. Or verse 103 How sweet are your words to my taste sweeter than honey to my mouth. Do you think about God's law, His words revealing His majesty and beauty? Because the more we understand that these words reveal who He is, the more we will find them beautiful. And the less we will find them burdensome. That would be a good question, just of reflection. Do I find God's law, do I find these ten words more burdensome or beautiful? And if we find them more burdensome, then beautiful, then we're missing something. Because these ten words reveal God's majesty, and they reveal God's beauty. Not only God's beauty, but the beauty of the world, of a life well lived, of how humanity is meant to function. I heard someone say one time, Christianity is not true because it works. However, it works because it's true. Christianity is not true pragmatically because it works. However, it does work because it is true. And I feel like that phrase really captures some of the beauty of these ten words. These ten words really are beautiful and helpful, efficient ways to live as a human in this world. But that's secondary. The primary thing they do is reveal God's beauty and His majesty. But the second thing that I want us to think about that they reveal, and once again, this is going to be somewhat counterintuitive, they reveal liberty and freedom. And maybe even just take a moment to reflect for a moment. When you think about the Ten Commandments, are the words liberty and freedom two of the first words that come to your mind? Probably not. But James in chapter 1, verse 25, speaks about God's law as the perfect law of liberty, or the perfect law of freedom. These ten words in the Ten Commandments and even beyond God's law in an overarching way is meant to bring freedom and liberty. It's meant to bring freedom for flourishing. It's meant to bring joy and contentment. For a balanced life. Even just think about those words. The concept of flourishing. It even just sounds attractive. Kind of like the word contentment. As elusive as it is. It's extremely attractive. Or what about a balanced life? It's something we all in one way or another. Probably lament every day. How unbalanced our life is. Yet here we have these ten words. The ten words that God gave His people for flourishing, for freedom, for liberty, for contentment, for balance. These really are meant to release us from our own captivity. To release us from the captivity of the world and to offer us great freedom. Have you ever thought about the fact that a prohibition in a strange way actually gives more freedom than a positive statement? Let's think about it like this. Let's say you go to a restaurant. And kids, you might be able to relate with this more than adults because oftentimes uh, your parents are dictating for you what is in play and what is out of play on a menu uh, through certain criteria oftentimes having to do with cost. So for example, let's say you look at a menu in a restaurant and you tell me what is more liberating, this option A or option B. Option A, you can get any of the burgers Or, option B, you just can't get the chicken sandwich. It's interesting that a negative prohibition actually offers far more opportunities than a a statement of positive assertion. Of course, the best example of this would be God himself to Adam and Eve in the garden. It's so easy for us to fixate on what God asked Adam and Eve to not do. But inversely, what did God give Adam and Eve freedom to do? Everything else. Anything else. It's a strange thing to think that when these ten words speak in a prohibitive way, what they actually do is they speak words of flourishing and life. They speak words of great opportunity and freedom and liberty that can be experienced through a specific prohibition. It's probably why Martin Luther said, Love God and do as you please. That's a pretty radical statement within Christianity. Even dangerous, it seems, if you will. But boy, it seems pretty accurate to me, particularly if we look at the summary of the these ten words, the ten commandments in the New Testament, when Jesus says, actually, you can kind of boil all the commandments down to this, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Other than that, do whatever you want to do. Of course, when we're loving God, it will prohibit certain things implicitly. But what if Christianity was understood, not only to us, but to the culture at large? Love God and do as you please. It's important that we have God's laws and these boundaries. What would driving be like without lights and signs and markings on the road? How much fun would sports be with no rules, no out of bounds? It would be miserable. This is the ironic thing about human nature, but this is the beautiful thing because it's the way that God made us in His good order. We need boundaries in order to experience freedom. We need rules in order to flourish. And God knew this because He is a God of freedom and He's a God of liberty. We all know, those of us that are married, that marital faithfulness is more enjoyable than marital unfaithfulness. We know that there is more liberty in trusting each other as opposed to lying to each other. Right? And we could go through all the myriad of these, particularly the second half of the table that it's referred to. The last six commandments deal with our relations with each other. You could basically summarize and say the first four are about honoring God and the last six are about honoring each other. And when we honor each other, there's great liberty and freedom and beauty, and God knows this, and He's called us to this. So if, relation, if the main thing that this reveals is that relationship precedes rules, and then more particularly, we see that these ten words reveal God's beauty and His majesty, and then secondly, we've seen that these ten rules reveal freedom and liberty, the last thing I want us to see is that these ten words, the ten commandments, reveal purpose, purpose, and usage of the law. So theologians and scholars have dialogued and written and spoken and done much scholarship on the uses of God's law throughout the history of the world, and don't worry, we won't get into the weeds of those, but I'll simply summarize what John Calvin, the great reformer and theologian and pastor with a big heart, uh, the way that he summarized God's law, he said it essentially has three uses. God's law exists to show us God's righteousness and also to expose our unrighteousness. Number one, the law shows us our sin, misery, and futility. That's a purpose. That's what it reveals. But then he says, secondly, God's law, or these ten words, also act as a restraint for us. They don't only show us God's righteousness and our unrighteousness. These ten words also act as a restraint that is needed, just like traffic laws, for example. The law fulfills that purpose. And then the third use of the law, according to John Calvin and many others, the law guides us and instructs us. It's a teacher for us. It even admonishes us because we need it. The law as mentor, if you will. So the, pur- the, the, the purposes and the uses of the law that, is reve- that are revealed in these ten words are to show us our neediness and our unrighteousness. The purpose also is to restrain us from evil. Because given the right set of circumstances, any of us can do anything. Right? And then thirdly, the law, these ten words, act as a guide and a teacher And a mentor for us. But the last thing I want us to see in closing. That the law really reveals. The law really shows forth. The true law keeper himself. You see the ten commandments actually are a great summary. Of Jesus' character. And the ten commandments. These ten words without question. Were meant to point to ultimately. The need for a redeemer. Because when we think about loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, the good question to ask would be, how many of us have ever done that for one second in our entire life? Nobody has. Except one. The true law keeper. The true covenant keeper. Jesus himself is the embodiment. Jesus himself is the fulfillment. And that's really what these ten words reveal to us. They reveal to us Christ. They reveal to us our need for Him. They reveal to us the beauty of His active and His passive obedience in ways that you and I could never dream of doing. And they allow us to delight in Him and in His salvation. That's what the law does. Do you remember the conversation in the New Testament in Luke chapter 18 where there is a conversation between the rich young ruler and Jesus? And he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Meritocracy, right? What must I do in order to be redeemed? What must I do in order to be loved? What must I do in order to be with you? And then Jesus reveals to him, well, you know the law, don't you? And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, I know the law, the ten words. Of course i know them i've done all of those things which is an illusion of course and then jesus says okay he, he, it's like he gives him a break okay fine good there's just one more thing you've got to sell all your possessions and give them to the poor And then the text tells us this young ruler goes away sad because he knows he can't do it. And then Jesus' own disciples, do you remember how they conclude what just went on? Because you see, rich people, if they could not get to heaven, then the conclusion culturally was nobody can. And then what Jesus tells them is, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If we look at these ten words as a list of possibilities to be redeemed for ourselves or for our culture at large. We're doomed. But if we see God's law and we see these ten words as pointing to the one who is the true law keeper, who truly has never broken covenant with the Father nor with us, then these words do give great hope and liberty. I'll close with this quote from one scholar. These ten words deliver us from conceit and self-righteousness. It tells us rather clearly that we had better not look for our salvation in being decent or moral, law-abiding people, but that we can be declared righteous only through a living bond with Christ. Listen, who has fulfilled the whole law apart from Christ The law does nothing but condemn us. But in the hands of Christ, the law remains our charter of liberty. That's the purpose of God's law. Let's pray.